Hello, welcome to the Law of the Gosh podcast. To gay, to gay, bleh. <laughs> to, to, to gay. <laughs> that was uh, that's my Freudian slip. Freudian that's slip. Good. Yeah, that's funny. You're in a good mood today. That's awesome. All right, let's start again. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Law of the Gosh podcast. Today, I'm here again with Khalid Barui. Did I get that right? Yes, correct. And uh, I did a past episode with Khalid where we spoke about uh, Donald Trump right after Donald Trump was elected president. I think we recorded it the day before his inauguration. Correct. And that was a really good conversation. It's one of the podcasts I really enjoyed doing and both listening to. So if you guys want to check that out. That episode was episode five. Today, we're going to talk more about Khalid on a personal level and his views about religion. Khalid is originally from Morocco, where he lived most of his life. I believe in the past episode, you said you lived there until you were 27. Yeah, correct. And then he moved to the United States, where he became a naturalized citizen. And has lived in the United States for over 10 years now? Yeah, almost 11, yeah. Yeah, so Khaled has very good understanding of both living in the East and the West. And since uh, our past episode, that was quite a few months ago, uh, me and Khaled have spoken a lot. I have a lot of respect for him. I consider him a very intelligent person. So I wanted to bring him back to talk more about Morocco, about Islam. And thank you for coming back, Khaled. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. I, I know that we talked about Trump uh, about nine months ago. Oh my God, time goes flies so so fast. Actually, uh, maybe maybe my opinion of Trump has shifted slightly, but uh, I still stand with most of what I said uh, in the in the previous podcast. Just to <laughs> before we get started with the rest, can you tell me like what those maybe few uh, differences you've you've shifted um, on? Yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, I'm. I'm just becoming a little bit more skeptical on um, on uh, you know the delivery of of what he had promised. So uh, I'm on the fence right right now, watching and seeing what what's going on with uh, with uh, with with the delivery and the execution of what he's saying. Uh, the ideas look great on paper, um, uh, but I, I'm still I'm still waiting on the on the results. So. Um, I, it's still early to be honest, to, 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 to determine whether or not a, uh, I was wrong about him completely, but I will wait for, I, I would say, uh, until January next year, um, th that would make him, you know, uh, he would have been a president for a year. Um, then we could, we could make a, a judgment call, uh, based upon the results, uh, for the, for the entire year. But, uh, yeah, uh, there's a lot of things that I disagree with him on, and I and I say those things on the podcast. The whole t Twitter uh, craziness, uh, things that don't sound presidential, uh, things that could have been avoided. I know that he doesn't care, and he caters to the people who don't care about political correctness. I agree with that, and I understand that to to a certain uh, extent. Uh, but um, when you when you go back and forth tweeting. 
and uh, and just sounding unprofessional sometimes. I disagree with those uh, with those comments sometimes. And uh, and he stands on uh, on uh, global warming. Uh, he he stands on on um, climate change uh, in general that I disagree with. It's true that it's to me it wasn't a deciding factor uh, um, forecasting my vote. Um, I'm 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 saying um, the you're, you're referring to climate change, right? To climate change, mm-hmm. yeah. Decided- so I mean, you, what I understand is that you would disagree with his position on that, but it wasn't uh, enough to like get you to not vote for him. Correct. So mm-hmm. um, most of the things I that I took into consideration were uh, his his uh, uh, fiscal policies and uh, policies on immigration and so forth and uh and yeah so so let's let's uh, go back to your background we we spoke about it a little bit but you know a lot of it has to do with what we're going to talk about here which is religion and the middle east so uh i always like to get more of a feel of uh, the person and their upbringing where they're from so can you talk about where in um morocco are you from so I was born in Fez, Morocco, which is a medieval city. It's a it's a beautiful city, by the way. Um, and uh, doing a little bit of uh, marketing marketing for Morocco. Just kidding. But uh, basically, it's a it's a it's a very uh, I would compare it to Damascus or uh, Aleppo. It's so it's a it's a very historic uh, town. Uh, was one of the first found, uh, cities founded in Morocco. So I. I uh, was born there, and my family moved to Marrakesh, which is a very known tourist spot, also historic city. But I would compare it. Uh, a lot of people call it the Las Vegas of of Morocco or of North Africa. So a lot of tourists uh, from 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 Europe and from a lot of places uh, uh, come to Morocco to see Marrakesh. So I grew up in a city that is open uh, towards. Uh, you know, tourism and exchange with uh, with people from around the world, uh, which which was something that I believe I consider beneficial for me, uh, uh, being able to 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 spend a lot of my life in in a, in a city like Marrakesh. So that's uh, that's where I am from in Morocco, pretty much. And I would say both cities. <laughs> and I remember you saying your family was not that religious. Yeah, my family. Uh, is like most Moroccan families, I would say. Um, uh, but but maybe now things are, are a little bit changing, and 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 we'll talk more about that. But I believe, uh, let's just talk about my family. My family is 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 Sunni Muslim, and they are liberal in in many aspects. So they believe that uh, you know religion is personal, and that Islam is peaceful, and that you can uh, practice Islam uh, and and just be a peaceful person, and by uh, and you uh, you don't have to judge others. And they believe in uh, in the fact that whether or not you're Muslim doesn't matter. So these are things that not that not a lot of or not all Muslims believe. Um, but but I would say uh, a lot of Muslim, Moroccan families have the same idea about Islam because Moroccan Islam comes from a, I would say, liberal version or a, let, let me call it a soft version of Islam and it's Maliki Sunni Islam. Uh, I would say that's the mi- one of the mildest 
versions of Sunni Islam. Uh, of course, there are still some aspects that are very, uh, very extreme comparing to Western standards, uh, but still comparing to Wahhabism, uh, Maliki Islam, as applied 100%, is a lot milder than uh, Wahhabi Islam. So coming back to my family, my family only applies, I would say, 10% of Islam. Uh, the cultural aspects for Islam, of Islam, the Eid, which is the uh, you know Muslim festivals, the good bits of Islam, taking care of your families, taking care of your loved ones, taking care of the poor, and things like that. Uh, my dad drinks, uh, so he he doesn't believe that's a uh, that's an issue. And a lot of um, actually, Morocco is one of the countries where the majority of people drink. It's one of the biggest consumers of alcohol in the Islamic world. That, that's Morocco. Um, so it's kind of a contradiction because most, 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 if you ask them, if you ask people on the street, they'll tell you, okay, uh, um, alcohol is forbidden, but they still drink. And uh, that's, that's a very, sometimes it can be confusing for a lot of people. They say, well, we're, we're Muslims, but we still drink. And hopefully one day we will quit and we will be good Muslims. Hopefully we will, so that, <laughs> we will become is, good Muslims. <laughs> yes, that's uh, that's because the ult the ultimate goal is to follow the path of Muhammad as the example, and not drink and not have sex before marriage and, th and those things. But the majority of Moroccans do just do just that. They have sex before marriage. The majority do, and the majority uh, drink. Uh, so, but but just to stay within the answer, within your question, answer your question. Yes, my my family is is very liberal. They do they do practice Islam, especially my mom. My dad is kind of, uh, you know, has a lot of. Uh, he, he criticizes Islam quite a bit, but for my mom, it's it's a personal thing, and because she was raised in a very Islamic uh, environment. Uh, in an Andalusi family. So let me walk you through what an Andalusi family means. It's uh, the descendants of Muslims of Spain. And the Muslims of Spain, when they came to Morocco, they brought that very tolerant version of Islam that only uh, focuses on, uh, you know, being a good person, um, you know, being, uh, being good to your neighbor, being good to your family. And at the same time, a little bit of... Um, conservatism when it comes to you know uh you know sometimes wearing the hijab and so forth but but not as extreme as wahhabism for example so my grandfather who prayed five times a day who was a, a very um i would say sufi muslim i mean in uh sufism maybe i need to walk, walk you through the differences but sufi islam is is more on a a spiritual kind of Islam is I would compare it to the Buddhist monks if if you if you think about uh, people who practice Sufism on a daily basis there are people who or or the Christian Franciscans for example and the Catholic Church I'm not sure if you know about Franciscanos so a little bit of yeah, you know mm -hmm. focusing on oneself getting the becoming the best human you can be so that my grandfather was like that and my mother Learned what what she learned from him. She learned those tolerant uh, those aspects of tolerance and so forth. And and she didn't have to cover. She had two sisters. She has two sisters. They did not have to cover. She was able to wear jeans. She was able to 
uh, wear mini skirt. She was able to to wear bikinis in the 50s and 60s in Morocco while my grandfather was a very religious man. So that gives you an idea of how the original Islam was for the last couple of hundred years until recently. And maybe I can walk you through the differences at some point uh, during the um, podcast. Why I want to know how involved was Islam uh, in your life uh, routine? Did you go to mosque? Did you have to? It, was there any teaching of Islam in school? Uh, did you ever have to memorize Quran or read Quran, that kind of thing? And yes. how typical is that in Morocco? So, if it, you know, are they more religious than your upbringing or less religious than your upbringing? Great question. I, I, I would say I am on the more moderate side, uh, but there are a lot of Moroccans who were brought up to to uh, memorize Quran and to and in a very a way more strict families. Uh, how how many people like what percentage would you say in where you live that that's typical? at the time I lived in Morocco at the time I would say in my during my teenage and my childhood I would say the the majority were like me but then cha- things have changed uh, throughout through the years with the influence of Wahhabism and the return of the strict Islam little by little uh, to answer can, the question, can I just uh, stop you there for a second I just want to sure. highlight that. I've, I've been talking to a lot of people on my podcasts, people from all over the Arab world, and they all ha- are telling me that there is a more fundamentalist version of Islam growing in their country. And so much of it has to do with the influence of Saudi Arabia, not just in the Middle East. I mean, like uh, somebody like Yasmin Mohammed, who was, one, was on my podcast, she even described when she was very young in Canada, how her mosque became more fundamentalist in Canada because of the influence of Saudi money. So this is everywhere. It seems to be a recurring theme I'm hearing from people. Correct. Mm-hmm. And especially uh, during the uh, post-1992 to 1995 Bosnian war, Saudi Arabia started investing in Bosnia and Herzegovina, building mosques and trying to indoctrinate young Bosnians and telling them the Islam you were being following is fiasco it's not correct this is the islam we're fo- we need to teach you and with the bosnians not knowing arabic and thinking oh my god we've been wrong all these years and that's why we have been uh, you know god is mad at us and we have been like our country has been destroyed with the war so we need to go to the right path so saudi arabia used that argument and there has been a lot of growing extremism in bosnia and the balkan region now going down to north africa North Africa is kind of similar. Like North Africa has a different culture. Morocco, by the way, is not an Arab country. Morocco is an Arab-speaking country. So it's a different story uh, when it comes to the cultural differences between Morocco and the Middle East or Saudi Arabia. I really wanted to ask you about that if Moroccans consider themselves Arab. So they don't consider themselves Arab? Well, whether they do or don't, the facts... can don't consider them Arab, but the, now the majority, I mean, there's a growing number of youth or young people who now recognize that they are not Arabs. But I know that the ones who are Amazighs, which is the first inhabitant of North Africa, the Amazighs were the main or the people of the land before the Muslims took over Morocco. They are now representing roughly 45% or maybe more uh, from a linguistic standpoint, people who speak Amazigh are about 45% of the 
of Morocco. But they do also speak Arabic because they have to. Why? Because it was the language of the oppressor, the language of the violator, and the language of the, pers- or the, the, the people who took over their land. The same way they took other lands like Palestine and other places. Palestine is not an Arab place. It was taken over by the Arabs. Same thing for Morocco. But Morocco had, um, you know, once they, the, the, the Berbers were defeated and some of them embraced Islam, those Berbers were used to conquer Spain. A lot of Arabs, and I'm not here, I'm not being sectarian here. Arabs are my friends. Arabs, you know, you know I, I'm not kind of pointing out that we're Berbers versus Arabs. I consider myself everything. I mean, I, I'm a mix of a lot of things. So I'm not talking from a racist perspective or sectarian perspective, but I'm talking about historic facts. A lot of Arabs think that that the the Spain on the quote unquote glory of Islamic world is based on Arabic conquest of Spain. It isn't. The 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 leader, the military leader who took over Spain was Amazir. Tariq ibn Ziyad is an Amazir. Uh, a fighter that embraced Islam. Um, so, okay, so th- there is a huge cultural difference between Morocco and let's say, let's say Egypt, though Egypt is not Arab either. It's a mix of, of, uh, of Egyptian and, and Arabic cultures. Uh, Morocco is very different compared to Saudi Arabia, way more different from uh, you know, uh, a lot of aspects as far as culture, as far as customs, as far as, um, you know, things that the way we practice Islam, obviously. So that, that has a huge, uh, a huge impact though. Now, uh, with the rays of Wahhabism, they're trying to remind us or to remind Moroccans that the source of Islam is Saudi Arabia is the land of Islam. Ardul Islam is Mecca and Medina. So now a lot of Moroccans, like I would say, emotionally take or start following those, whatever you tell them is coming from Saudi Arabia or whatever, uh, whatever you tell them Muhammad said, they would want to follow it because it's an emotional thing to them, even if it, they don't connect with it, even though it's not who they are. So um, so that's that's uh, that's what uh, what I wanted to point out about. Oh, and also, about- uh, can you talk about like uh, what I said uh, about the how common the practice and or teaching of Islam is in schools or society? Right, right. So let's get back to that. To that, that's a gr- great question. <clears throat> there, in in Morocco, there are there are two types of, I would say, uh, elementary or pre-K uh, school. So pre-K, I mean. Before, before you start elementary school, you can either go to a Quranic school or go to a private kindergarten uh, or a missionary kindergarten missionary. We say missionary, but La Mission which, or the French mission at the time where we still do have uh, a, a cultural presence from the French uh, since the, uh, uh, the, the era of colonialism or... Um, Protectorate, whatever. So, the the French stayed in Morocco since from 1912 to 1956, and we have a lot of a strong strong ties with France, and they we still have French institutions in Morocco: high schools, uh, 
uh, elementary schools, though they're very limited and they're uh, 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 for the the majority of the people who go to French schools are the elite of of Moroccan society. So you've got the people, especially the lower middle class, who are religious. They'll send their kids to what we say the Quranic school or Masid, the Quranic school. So they teach them Quran and they will re- keep repeating it until they uh, learn it by heart. And after that, they will go to elementary school where they learn regular curriculum. But at the, main, at the meantime, they will have to learn Quran as part of the program. And there's something called Islamic education is part of the curriculum throughout your childhood and high school. And unless you... And what would that involve, that curriculum? That involves a, ver- a kind of a mild version of Islam. That involves Islam that works for the system. Let me walk you through it. Moroccan system is, we have a monarchy. And the king is supposed to be the commander of the faithful and the descendant of the prophet Muhammad. So he has, he cannot go against Islam. He has to present Islam as legit so that he can preserve, uh, you know, uh, his status as a legit commander of the faithful and the king at the same. Commander of the faithful is like the pope slash king. So the king has both powers. Uh, He also has the uh, judicial power, which means Morocco is a absolute monarchy. And we do not have checks and balances at all. Since 19... No, I'm sorry. 1666, right? It's a monarchy? Uh, well, no. It's always, it's always been a monarchy. We've always had a, we've always had a sultan. Or maybe I'm referring... I think because I, I was looking it up before talking to you. I'm referring specifically to the Alawite royalty. To the, Al- the Alawite uh, have ruled Morocco for 300... And I'm not sure exactly, but more than 300 yeah, years. Yeah, that's probably what I was looking... I, I saw. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, you're talking about the Alawites, and yeah, before we didn't, the, the the king wasn't called king, he was called a sultan. Sultan in Arabic means uh, all-powerful, almighty, pretty much. Um, so the, the, the name changed to king after the French left. And the first king Moroccans had was the king Hassan, who was uh, kind of presents himself as a modern uh, king, but at the same time wants to preserve the Islamic foundation of Morocco. So he was dance. he was like surfing, kind of keeping that balance between keeping Islam as a legitimate religion, but at the same time not allowing the Salafist to take over Morocco. So he, he was keeping that balance for quite some time until he died. And after he died, I mean, th- three years or four years after he died, we started having those Salafi movements uh, because the new king was not oppressing them as much. So we had the first terrorist attack in 2003. Uh, uh, the first king died in, uh, or uh, King Hassan died in 1999. So anyway, so that's, the, going back to answer the question on the, uh, you know, Islamic uh, teaching in Morocco, it's not, it's, it's not by any means close to any Middle Eastern country. Uh, it, most, of the, most of the school programs are presenting Islam as a spiritual thing, as a religion of peace, as things uh, things of that nature. I was not, my dad decided not to send me to the Quranic school. I went to a French private school when I was little. 
so I learned French and uh, and Arabic uh, really early on, and he was against this whole idea of Msid, and uh, and uh, you know he he was just skeptical about it from a doctrine standpoint, but also uh, there were a lot of incidents with those imams uh, being pedophiles and, and molesting those ch- children, so he was like, I'm not going to send you to a I'm not going to send my child to Msid to be molested by some imam. Yeah, my dad was very aware of what's happening in society. He's an engineer, but also uh, a sociologist. He studied sociology as well, and he he studied the Moroccan society uh, pretty, you know, quite quite deeply. So he he told me about those things uh, very at a very very early age, uh, which is very rare in Moroccan society and conservative societies in general. Uh, parents don't talk to their to their kids about these things. Uh, so yeah, I mean there were cases of child molestation in those in some mosques. I'm not saying all imams are like that, but uh, he was just basically, I'm not sending you there. They're going to indoctrinate you. And I did, it's not like I asked him to to send me there. It was just he was just talking about it, and he was criticizing parents who were sending their kids to those types of institutions. Um, so that's basically how how it is when it comes to Islamic teachings or Islamic schools in Morocco. Is mostly Islam the, as Islam tailored to cater to the system, to the Moroccan system, uh, which is the absolute monarchy that we have. So, do you know? Remember when you felt like you did, you were had become an atheist that you properly were completely non-believing in religion? It took it took some time, you know. I started like you know doubting, doubting. It's like a domino effect. I started doubting uh, uh, religion by. I think I will tell you one of one of the first things that made me question religion was the whole sex slavery, and the way the fact that Islam uh, allowed or Quran allowed men to beat their wives. I was I was thinking, why would God? allow such a thing why would god even recommend such a thing so i started looking into it and i realized that in hadith as well uh women are not allowed to refuse sex from their husbands and if they do like uh, uh, uh you know the angels will spend their night cursing them like the angels have nothing to do that's their full-time job so uh and that's that's really why uh, I started like digging more, looking into it, looking at the history of sex slavery in Islamic world that spread across the region, and uh, you know caused the enslavement of 2.5 million innocent people. Uh, Can in- I um, ask you uh, something? I I want to start asking people if I speak to them who have lived in the Middle East in some country. Uh, I started doing this in the last podcast with a. Uh, with Mohammed Al-Qadra, who's from Jordan, um, a lot of people use statistics from Pew Research online. I do this. I've noticed, you know, even uh, critics of Islam or ex-Muslims use these numbers because it's kind of hard to get uh, general statistics or to get an idea of what life is like in a lot of these Muslim-majority countries. But I want to know if, if the numbers kind of match to what your impression is of Morocco. Um, Morocco is one of the countries that there was a lot of times missing from a lot of these statistics, which is unfortunate. But for example, it says support for making Sharia the official law of the country. I found that surprising. It was very high. It was at 83%. 
Yeah, I've seen that. I've read that. And uh, to throw you some more, and you can comment on all of them, it says, uh, Muslims who say Islam alone leads to heaven, 94%. Um, is It's necessary to believe in God to be moral, 95%. Um, that Western entertainment, music, movies, television hurts morality, 72%. Um, do, do those numbers kind of match uh, your your impression uh, of uh, of Morocco? Of Morocco today, absolutely, hundred percent. Oh, really? Hundred percent. Yes, yes. Mm. But I'll tell you, like the timeline, uh, like uh, Morocco, you know, compared to Afghanistan and to Iran, back in the sixties and fifties, people didn't give a shit about hijab. We had people here and there wearing. A traditional hayek, which is a cover of the body, or a traditional uh, niqab, which is a it's a very transparent uh, uh, cloth that they put on their faces. But that was the most of a mo mostly a traditional thing, and cultural thing than really an Islamic thing. But but uh, in the 60s and 70s, we had a wave of openness, and people have 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 started to move away from Islam slowly, right? I believe what happened was an intervention, uh, an empowerment of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. By empowering the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, which came from the United States, that they thought it was a way to defeat communism, taking over the region. So the Muslim Brotherhood started spreading their ideas in Egypt and across the region, all the way to Morocco. So in the 80s, in the 80s, we started seeing... I, 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 like in the elementary school, we had nobody with a hijab in the 80s, zero. And towards the end of the 80s, we started seeing here and there hijabis. And, and we used to think it's very odd. It's that hijab and the way it's put on, like the way women put it on their head, the way, the, the way they applied that scarf is very Egyptian. It wasn't Moroccan. So... Oh, so, but can I, I'm sorry, that, that's really interesting because I always see people put kind of these memes, which sometimes historical pictures of Iran and Afghanistan and Iraq and maybe Morocco. And they show, look, women in this time weren't wearing hijab and they were dressed very Western and they were modernizing. And then they say, look at it now. And people are, have more hijab and more niqab. And a lot of these times, these are just Twitter accounts of people in the West but you're saying you lived through that. You saw when you were young that people didn't wear a hijab and suddenly you saw slowly it come in. Yes, absolutely. The king has oppressed and even people have rejected the extreme doctrine for the in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, all the way, especially when the, uh, when the Shah of Iran fell and we saw how Iran became. We didn't have social media then, but you could see the impact. The king was freaking out. He was like, "There's no way in hell I was I would allow such a thing to take over Morocco." I think it was the first uh, te televised revolution of the Middle East, actually, that the of Iran. Yeah, correct. It was it was very different. It was Shia, but still, there's uh, like, I'll, I'll give you now the other issues that were happening in Morocco. Like there was a lot of tension happening. Towards the end of the 80s, well, you have the Brotherhood being very empowered at that point. If you listened to, to a speech from Jamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt in the 70s, and actually, sorry, in the, in, not, not the 70s, the, 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 I, I believe it's in the mid-60s or, or the late 50s, he was talking about hijab as a ridiculous thing. 
Uh, I'll send you the video, but he was saying... I, I've seen it. He was, you've seen it. Yeah, he, he was saying he had a conversation with a member of the Muslim Brotherhood who was, who was asking him to, imp, to impose the hijab on women in his country. And he was saying this to Parliament. And they all started laughing. He said, why don't you put it on? And on he, your daughter. Yeah, yeah, and he said, you know, he pointed out that his daughter of this guy from the Muslim Brotherhood, your daughter doesn't wear hijab. You you want me to impose it on all women in my country? You can't even get your own daughter to wear it. But it right. shows that even in Egypt, decades ago, e Egyptians would laugh at that notion. And today, it's very common that women wear the, the hijab. I mean, I would say 80% of women now wear hijab. And if women don't wear hijab, they will shame them for it. Morocco doesn't have, uh, didn't reach, has not reached that, but we're getting there. So again... Towards the, the 80s, you, the end of the 80s, you've got the Muslim Brotherhood getting very, very powerful. And then the beginning of the 90s, you've got the Wahhabis, Wahhabis getting more involved in the region with, when the war in Bosnia started. And by the way, Bin Laden started there in Bosnia. So, And then in the beginning of the 90s, you've got Algeria right next to us getting radicalized and a crazy, absolutely horrific civil war started between the liberals and the new uh, uh, Islamic front. One million people died, Lalo, in, in, in Algeria uh, uh, as a result of this conflict. Morocco was like shielding itself from this. And the king of Morocco at the time, from, the, from 92 all the way to 99 when he died, was completely making sure, I mean, enforcing security and making sure that none of that slips through to Morocco. But we had ideas slip through because in the 1992, 1993, I would say the beginning of the 90s, we started having those satellite channels. Back in the day, we used to only have one or two channels, state channels. We could not hear or see anything from the outside world. Now, we all of a sudden, Moroccans are listening to the Muslim Brotherhood channels in Egypt. They're listening to the Wahhabi channels in Saudi Arabia. And they're getting more indoctrinated, and you know they, you know they they are getting more brainwashed, indoctrinated, and and getting more Islamic, in the sense Muhammad preaches or preached. So, uh, you know they they they're like more focused on the Hadith. Uh, the Imam started getting inspired by a lot a lot a lot more radical views. However. Moroccan government always had a police guy in the mosque to make sure that the speech was not radical. So that's one thing that helped Morocco from a security perspective. That's why Morocco is not going, it, it, it has been one of the best countries to uh, uh, crack down or, or to control uh, the spread of terrorism and Islamic fundamentalism in, in the country. However, the people who felt oppressed, people who felt like the, the Moroccan government is a corrupt and is a spreading bad ideas and changing the religion have started getting more and more radicalized. And they were like, okay, well, let's blow up. So they did the first terrorist attack in 2003 and that kept going. And those kept going as far as the, the, the ideas, not the terrorist attacks. So the, the ideas kept spreading. And these people, when... When uh, the war in uh, the war in uh, Bosnia started, a lot of them went, and when the war in Syria started, we sent about three. We didn't send them. three thousand Moroccans 
are now in Syria fighting uh, with Islamic State. Uh, uh, a lot of their military commanders are Morocco, Moroccans. And Morocco has a very strict policy. If you go to Syria, you can't come back. If you come back and get arrested, four years in jail or this, the death sentence, though we don't really apply it. We just, sometimes we, we, we say, okay, well, you're sentenced to death, but we don't carry, carry it out. So, I, I mean, I find it interesting. You, you, are, you use a lot the, the how should I say, the, how much freedom w women have in a country to measure this. I've been told uh, before um, by other people, such as uh, in a podcast I did with uh, Gada and Yasmin, Gada being from uh, Saudi Arabia, they told me you can always look to the women to see how fundamentalist uh, a group is or society is in, in Islam. And um, I just want to point out a couple more statistics from Pew Research and 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 there's like four statistics here and they show a duality of thought that I think shows both the old thinking of Morocco towards the the new, which is more fundamentalist. So it says that why uh, the percentage of people who believe the wife must always obey the husband, 92% sons and daughters should have equal inheritance, only 15%. So that shows kind of a negative look towards women and their rights. But then at the same time, I found statistics that said that should women be able to decide if they want to veil 85 percent, which is which is better, and women should have the right to divorce 73 percent. So you have these these contradictory statistics. And is it because of this transition of thought and fundamentalism in the country? No, it's because Morocco is contradictory in itself as a country. There's a lot of ideas that are contradictory. You've got the guy who's sleeping around and drinking wants a virgin. He wants to marry a virgin according to Islam. But Islam teaches to stay virgin for both. You have to stay remain virgin. Uh, I mean, men or, and women have to cannot have sex before marriage. But most men don't care. And men are not judged on this, but women are. Uh, you've got... A lot of other things, I mean, th th this makes sense. The Pew Research makes sense because when uh, they are asked the question, they're putting their, they, they put their religious hat. If they say, for example, the question that you asked, um, uh, what, was the, what was it like, uh, do you need God to be moral, 95%? Even right, if they yeah. didn't believe it, even if they didn't believe it, they'll say yes because they would think that God would judge them if they say no. You know what I mean? So that's, it's a it's a very it's a very complicated but it's a religious thought. Uh, you oh, know, it's is, not. Is, funny. is this what you uh, maybe you, these people were referring to in uh, in your Facebook group that is dedicated especially towards Moroccan atheists? You mentioned that you were going to be on my podcast, and you asked what should I talk about, and I noticed a lot of people said hypocrisy in right. Morocco, and they use that yes. word a lot, and I was kind of wondering what they meant. Is this kind of yeah. the thing you were you, they they were referring that is, to? That is one of those things, the hypocrisy, and um, yeah. So, um, like for for example, uh, you know, uh, Moroccan society, like you cannot, like like I said, people like to sleep around and and go to prostitutes and stuff, but they would judge a woman if she gets pregnant, you know. And they wouldn't help her. I mean, it's a very shameful to be pregnant, to get pregnant before marriage. 
nobody would blame the guy. It's always the girl. And of course, we know that Islam is patriarchal, but still, this is a lot of contradiction. And you know, a lot, there are a lot of other examples that I could mention about about the whole hypocrisy. I actually couldn't find the statistics on the view of homosexuality in Morocco, but there was a case just in 2016 of two teenage girls, but in their late teens, uh, hugging and kissing in public, and they were arrested. They were acquitted and they weren't actually sentenced to jail, but they were arrested and they could have faced jail. And just the fact that they were arrested was kind of shocking considering uh, Morocco's history. How, how is the view in general towards homosexuality in Morocco? I am very, very familiar with that case. I actually got involved in that case and, uh, you know, to help help out. Uh, um, and they're fortunately they were able to. I, I contacted some of my friends, and some of some of them were members of the group, and some of them uh, have contacts with the Moroccan uh, um, Human Rights uh, Association. Um, so we were able to get them out. But the, the the most shocking part was like they were not doing it in public; they were doing it on the rooftop of their house. But one of the one of the girls' mothers actually called the police so she the, the the mother following her islamic upbringing she called the police to kind of give them a, a lesson but when they were arrested the the mother kind of regretted it and she she started like uh, you know trying to uh, get them out of there but still it was already too late she, you already re- filed a report that your your daughter, like those two girls, were kissing, and though there's no nothing fits kissing, but you're not you, you're not supposed to have uh, you know sexual uh, interactions or sexual um, or, or, or any kind of expression of uh, I would say. Uh, uh, how do you call that? Uh, public display of affection, whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, uh, and even worse, when you're homosexual, it's homosexuality and the act of having sex with the same with somebody who's the, uh, the same sex of the same sex. You are punishable by law uh, up to, I think, six months in prison. Uh, and I've, they have applied once; they have applied it on a on a gay couple. Uh, because they were a gay activist and they were kissed in the streets to kind of show that they are fed up of that and they were arrested and they went to jail for four months, I believe. And the reason why the Moroccan system did not abolish those laws is because now with the growing extremism in Morocco, people would think, okay, well, now the king is allowing homosexuality to take place. So what are we? Are we still Muslims or not? And that would provoke a revolution against the king, and he doesn't want to deal with that. So he was just—he would just let it happen and let it go. He wouldn't abolish those rules, though I don't believe he cares about those rules as much as some of the Moroccan uh, society does care about those rules. So, but, but how does the um, general public feel towards homosexuality? Would you say in general it's negative? Negative, absolutely, yes. Uh, very, very negative, uh, especially male homosexuality, men with men, men having sex with men is an abomination. Uh, But yeah, I mean, Islam rejects homosexuality and punishes homosexuality, though people might 
may say that it doesn't. It does. Moroccan society absolutely rejects homosexuality. Gay marriage probably will not happen in even 300 years in Morocco. So. That I mean, that, that's a really interesting. I mean, even in the bastion of so many countries that people look to to say like, oh, this is a liberal Muslim country. There's certain things where it's still they're, they're not even close to getting there yet. And I mean, that's uh, for um, gay rights, but even women's rights, as I understand, they're still there's a lot of limitations uh, for women. It does. For example, does FGM exist in, in Morocco? I don't know. No, it, no, it does not. Zero. It doesn't. OK, it's not. Because we apply a Maliki, uh, Maliki uh, version of Islam, and it uh, that does not include FGM. Uh, FGM exists in Shafi'i and other other sects or other versions of Islam, like in Egypt and the Horn of Africa. It is not an African problem. It is an Islamic problem. Uh, it existed before Islam, but Islam did not abolish it in those places, and Muhammad encouraged it in a lot of those hadiths. And who are sahih hadiths, not fake hadiths. Um, so yeah, so FGM doesn't exist. Women's rights, good, good, good point. I think I mentioned it during the podcast when we talked about Trump. Uh, uh, but uh, women can, we have a lot of smart women in, in Morocco. A lot of them are very, very uh, excellent academically. And they uh, reach very good positions. Um, you know, we have doctors, lawyers, we have uh, People in the parliament, we have ministers, I mean, working in the government, uh, high positions. The king's wife is open and, and, sh and she's not wearing a hijab or anything like that. So to kind of encourage that emancipation of women. So that, that's there, but the society is still very patriarchal and society is very oppressive towards women. And they still look at women as something like that is, that is below them. Um, I mean, comparing to, I would say, to other countries, we probably are ahead. Morocco is ahead. But I believe now Tunisia is is, is getting ahead of Morocco with, those, uh, with the, recently when they passed uh, uh, equal inheritance uh, for women and men and also the ability for women to marry a non-Muslim. Those are forbidden in Morocco because of Islam. These are not just cultural things. Islam does not allow... Women Wait, up until what parents. year could could uh, women not marry a non-Muslim? Nobody, women, Muslim women cannot marry non-Muslims unless they convert in Morocco. But is it still like that, or did they change the law? It is. It is still like that. It changed. Oh, it's still in like that. In Tunisia. Oh, in Tunisia. Yeah. Oh, in yes. Morocco, they they still can't. Still cannot. Yes. Wow, that's really interesting. I, would, I, I wouldn't have thought that about Morocco. A lot of guys actually pretend they converted. So you just go and say, I converted, and that's it. But, but Muslim but, men can marry non-Muslim women. Of course, because that's a, a, a male-dominating religion. It's a patriarchal religion. The man has to keep his religion, or has to be the, the Muslim uh, one, uh, so that at least the household is Islamic. And that's how it, that's how it worked for uh, during the type of the, the, the Muhammad's time and, and, and on. So because men dominated the household then, after Islam, obviously, because before Islam, women also were able to dominate the household. Muhammad's wife dominated the household before Islam. So and th and this uh, prohibition to not marry Muslim men is completely in the Quran. I, I've read it myself. 
and yes. very explicit. Yes. And in hadith too. Hadith too. Um, so can, uh, oh, may, may I should, uh, I'll bring this up that, uh, in also in the Facebook group, um, which I really like, you really engage with the women who are Moroccan, a lot of them atheists. And they're, I think a lot of them are still in Morocco and you ask them a lot about, um, the oppression that they face in, in, in Morocco. So I, I really, uh, enjoy how you, you focus on them and you ask them about their problems. You ask them about if they face less catcalling and maybe harassment on the street if they wear hijab versus not wearing hijab and they and most of them said that it's exactly the same and those who didn't say it was the same said they faced more harassment when wearing the hijab which i, I thought was really interesting quite a few women on that page uh, uh referred to that um, how would you say is the treatment of women publicly in Morocco? Yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a very uh, um, um, sensitive topic. Um, Moroccans face a lot of street harassment. Uh, Moroccan women do face a lot of street harassment. Uh, uh, whether it starts from mild catcalling or, uh, you know, flirting or saying, you know, you're beautiful, you're this, you're that, to following, to touching, to holding, to kidnapping and rape. So it has different stages. And uh, rape in Morocco is an epidemic. Uh, most recently, there was a video of a girl who was raped in the bus, and it went viral worldwide. Um, and that is, the issue with it is that uh, society blames the victim, mostly. Even the parents of these girls blame them. Um, even the police, when you go report a, ca a rape case, They'll blame you. They'll tell you, why did you go to their place? If, if a girl went to somebody's place and he raped her, they would blame her for going to his place. You're not supposed to go to his place, they'll say. Or if, if a girl gets raped in somebody's car because she just you know, recklessly decides to jump in in somebody's car because he talked to her in a way uh, that lead, led her to do this and takes her somewhere and rapes her, she cannot go to the police and say, well, he took me and raped me. Well, why did you go in the car? And that's a lot. That's why a lot of girls don't report rape. And even if they report it, and they the person gets convicted, it's maximum jail time of five years. And uh, back up until two thousand twelve, the rapist were well. The victim was given the chance to actually marry the rapist, and he would be able to 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 be freed. And it most recently was abolished in Tunisia as well. It's a practice because mostly the concern is not the rape. The concern is the virginity. Society focuses so much on the virginity. And this it's still a, an issue in Morocco. Being a virgin is important if you want to get married. Again, the same patriarchal stuff. So women are pressured to keep their virginity. So they get creative, creative. Uh, uh, you know, when when it comes to sexual life, in order not to have vaginal penetration, but if they get raped, they'll focus more on their virginity. Their parents will focus more on their virginity. Society will focus more on their virginity than the act, the fact that she was actually fucking raped, and that's the issue. Uh, okay, and, and yes, going back to catcalling, it, it is very common. It can be very aggressive sometimes, and there's no laws to prevent that from happening. There's no laws to prevent that. So 
Uh, and if somebody complains, they'll tell them, well, why did you wear a short skirt? Why did you wear tight pants? But the reality is everybody gets catcalled. Everybody gets touched, whether they wear hijab or not. And in certain cases, the girls, that when they were wearing hijab, they were more harassed because people would focus on them more and, and scrutinize the dress code. Uh, because if you wear a hijab, you're supposed to cover up and whatever. And if you wear pants, people will start like in comments about, well, this is not proper hijab. Or they would think of it as an attractive thing. So when you're covered, you're l harder to get and things like that. And that's that's how the mentality is. And that's why some of those hijabis were, were attacked more than non-hijabis. Uh, and covering has never helped. Never. Uh, in fact... Uh, the women who were told uh, that you should cover in order to avoid harassment actually didn't help them at all. It's just an idea that is actually uh, promoted by, again, the same uh, Wahhabi Islamic mindset by men and by women too. Women raise their, their, their daughters a different way. They raise them to... Uh, protect themselves, they raise them in, in a way that they shouldn't be uh, hanging out with boys, they should protect, protect their virginity, they should do this, they should do that, they should listen to the brother because the brother is the man, and they'll talk to the brothers completely differently. The brother will be given power over their sisters, and by the, by extension, you're, the society is given the, the man more power over women in general. In the workplace, there will be more harassment in the workplace. Yes, Moroccan women can work. Yes, they can get high, uh, they can achieve really high career goals, but they would still have to deal with harassment everywhere they go. So considering that Morocco is such a patriarchal place, it sounds like men have a lot of power there. So why would you move to the United States and become a citizen there? Isn't it great for a guy in Morocco? <laughs> so I, I'm asking, like, what what made you want to move to the to the states and become a citizen? Yeah, actually, uh, it's not well. Well, guys have their own problems too. Right. I mean, guys, guys, uh, you know, there is not. I mean, even if you, for example, let's say you have a girlfriend, and that's not one of the reasons why I moved here. But let's give you an example. You have a girlfriend, and you you cannot actually go to a hotel room or book a hotel room if you don't have a marriage license. That's a ridiculous law that we have in Morocco. Really? You have to, yes. Ridiculous. Uh, but if you have an American passport, and she does have an American or French passport, regardless, you'll be able to be given a room, which is also ridiculous. Uh, if you, um, There are so many laws like that, and Moroccan guys are oppressed too. I need to point that out. Not, not just girls. Uh, Moroccan guys are oppressed politically, uh, there are a lot of things that, that uh, well, I know this podcast is not about politics, but late recently there, there has been a, a series of protests about basic needs, things that freedom is like freedom of speech, uh, education, education system in Morocco is, is ruined. It needs to, it needs a major makeover, makeover. And uh, a, a lot of these, a lot opportunities are not, I mean, basically, uh, there are not a lot of opportunities in Morocco for, for young guys, even the, the most talented ones. Uh, I'll be honest, my, my, my life in Morocco was fine. I mean, I had the job, uh, um, my family's upper middle class, things like that. 
But I'm talking in general, a lot of Moroccans just want to leave. And some of them actually crossed the, the, the Detroit Gibraltar illegally to go to Europe to escape the, uh, you know, the, the uh, poverty and uh, a lot of social things that they're frustrated about. Uh, getting married in Morocco is very difficult. It's, it's very expensive. Sometimes girls have high demands and that the guys cannot fulfill if they don't have a job. You can't have a, you can't get married, but also you can't have sex outside of marriage because of those restrictions. You you cannot you cannot get a hotel room easily if you go to an apartment, and uh, the people who are going to rent you the apartment now with the growing of 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 Islam Islamization of Morocco, they would ask you if she's married to you or not. So you have to have your own house, and in order to have your own house, you have to be uh, you have to have a high income. And that's one of those frustrations that lead a lot of Moroccans to leave. And not just Moroccans, I mean, most people from the MENA region, except for Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and those rich oil, rich countries that take care of their people and them, you know, um, you know, in Saudi Arabia, they'll, they'll take care of a lot of your stuff without having to work. So. so can you tell me about your experience moving to the States? What appealed to you? Was it... Uh, was it what you imagined it to be or were there disappointments or was it even better than you imagined? Like, what was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, uh, my, my, my uh, idea was to come here and do a management training and then uh, maybe go for a master's degree, which, 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 which is what I've done, but I've uh, interrupted it at some point and I'm going now for an uh, executive, in, uh, executive MBA at this point. But what I liked about it uh, what i liked about the united states is the constitution the liberty uh you know things that are very very simple for americans like the ability to uh, do whatever you want to do under the law uh things that i was not able to do in morocco criticizing uh you know the system criticizing the king openly uh, here you can criticize the the the, the president openly uh, you can uh, have fun without being interrupted by 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 police. Uh, you you can do a lot of things that that are that are considered simple aspects of life, but they're a lot easier to do here. I love the fact uh, that the opportunities are 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 limitless here. Uh, if you work hard, you can be whoever you want to be, actually. And uh, the education system, high, high, higher education system is, is amazing. Um, you know, even at work, there's not that aspect of dictatorship. In Morocco, having a boss is having a dictator uh, telling you what to do on a daily basis. Uh, and here is different, is more of a colleague relationship. And I had to be taught that too, because when I came in, I was a little bit of a small dictator when it comes to, you know, uh, you know like my management style. How, so, how do you mean by that? Is there a cultural difference there you're referring to? Yes. Yeah. So bosses are more of a uh, little dictators. It's a, it's a mentality. I mean, I, I was less of a dictator, to be honest, but the majority of Moroccan bosses are very dictatorial. dictatorial. Uh, and actually, dictatorship starts at home. The dad, which wasn't the case for my dad, but the dad is usually... Uh, like holds the entire home with an iron fist, <laughs> so you have to listen to your dad, and uh, otherwise everything will 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 go wrong. 
so yeah, so even the management style is like you ha- I am your boss and you do you do and you, you do what I tell you to do pretty much. Uh, but uh, it's changing. I mean, there are some young leaders now that are, that that are leading the country. I mean, on the business business world, in the business world, to a different direction. But uh, I, I still believe that there there is a lot of dictatorial bosses, people who use their power to abuse their employees, whether they're men or women, and sometimes sexually abuse their uh, women who actually uh, their their female workers who actually reached out to me many times to, to complain about those issues and, and see if they can uh, if they can legally pr- prosecute these, these bosses. But here, uh, it's really difficult to do that because of the laws. The laws are very strong and they're applied and, and people will listen to victims. We have, even in, in big companies now, a big, I work in a big, big corporation, uh, it's structured and the human resources uh, folks are, usually take those kind of complaints seriously. You can't make sexual remarks in the workplace. A lot of other things, you know, and uh, in general, I, I believe America has its problems, has, it has its issues. I'm an optimistic person. I see the big picture. And uh, I think America is the best package. I mean, a lot of people don't admit that, but or don't want to admit that, but it's the best package available in the world with its, good, with it, with its pros and cons. It is absolutely the best package available. And to answer your question, whether or not it, uh, you know, it's better or worse than my expectation, actually, it exceeded my expectations, and that's why I decided to stay. Um, well, I mean, you said there kind of what you what you enjoyed about the freedoms uh, of the U.S. Um, how do you feel about now about how Americans see Islam uh, and its relation to the people to treat? Islam and the nominal term Muslims as a race, even if some people will say it's not a race, they'll still treat it as such. Um, for example, you probably know the that famous scene with Sam Harris speaking on uh, Bill Maher's real time and Ben Affleck calls him a, a racist for, for criticizing Islam. Do you think he's doing a favor to to people in the Middle East when uh, Ben Affleck uh, accuses him of racist or in general terms now, there seems to be an apologia attitude to defend Islam in the name of Muslims. Uh, how, do you, how do you think that affects people uh, in the Middle East? Uh, I believe Ben Affleck's uh, comments serve the people who who are more extremist when it comes to Islam, who do not want Islam criticized. Even moderate Muslims want to criticize the doctrine. Moderate Muslims uh, criticize to an extent some of the aspects of the, of the doctrine. Uh, but saying that criticizing Islam is actually racist or, a, 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 or bigotry, that's not the case. That is an idea that was uh, promoted or spread by the Muslim Brotherhood to prevent people from criticizing Islam. So when you say, uh, you know, when you start like I'm doing now, I'm not being Islamophobic, by the way, that's a fake word, but let's say is uh, anti-Muslim bigotry. I'm not anti-Muslim because my family is Muslim and uh, a lot of a lot of pe- beautiful and amazing people that I know are Muslims. Criticizing their, their religion doesn't mean I'm criticizing them. However, Islam teaches that. Islam teaches if, that, that, that the religion is part of you and, and you're part of it. 
So if somebody criticizes your your religion, and if you if you are like a devout Muslim, you will take it personal and personally, and that's why, uh, and that's why it's you know, but Aflac's comments were very popular uh, in the Islamic world, and and it's especially popular when somebody that is not even a Muslim or is white is is defending quote unquote defending Muslims, uh, and. Ben Affleck is the typical liberal from the West who thinks Islam is the religion of the savages, brown people, and I'm here to defend them, right? So when he says this is racist, this is gross, he's referring to Muslims as brown and a different race. Well, Islam is, has no race. Muslims from around the world have embraced the religion uh, you've got white Muslims, you've got brown Muslims, you've got Chinese Muslims. That has nothing to do with race. If Bill Maher had criticized Christianity, I believe Ben Affleck wouldn't have said it's a racist because this Christianity has no race. So, but for him, for Ben Affleck's in Ben Affleck's mind, Islam has one race, or at least brown people are the followers of Islam, or black people, or they oppressed. So let's help them out. That is the new idea that is really popular, especially post-Trump nomination, is that uh, um, when, you, uh, when you criticize Islam, you're bad, and we are the amazing Western liberals who are going to come and deliver you from those evil people who criticize Islam, whether they are ex-Muslims or whether they are Westerners. Facts don't matter at this point. What matters is, for us to do some virtue signaling and to look like we are the saviors of the world. And they're doing this just for themselves. And they're not helping anyone. And not helping anyone by any means. Do you think also Muslims are taking advantage of, of those people and their, their ideas? Absolutely. Uh, for example, ISIS is happy to hear those things because they don't want people to start looking into Islam and finding the holes and the issues within it. So they want it to... They want to stop and silence anybody who criticizes Islam. That's been happening since the creation of Islam. Anybody who who was criticizing Muhammad was killed. So there was no room for criticism of Islam. There's no room to give or to make people think. There was no room for philosophy until later on. And even a lot of those philosophers had to fear for their life later on. So you cannot criticize Islam because that makes it weaker, that exposes it. And the fundamentalists don't like that. So the, and they use it in a different way. They go, imagine, look at those Christians, they're defending religion, and you Muslims who you're supposed to defend your religion, you're not doing that. Look at that, and given an example that way. So they use that propaganda differently. And, uh, and that's, that's sad, because now you cannot make people think you cannot bring up issues within Islam because now the West ha- has been so brainwashed that they will never engage in such a conversation. They are scared to be called racists. It's now one of those territories where you cannot go anymore. You know, it's, 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 it's worse than, than the whole slave trade history of the United States. Now it's, it's, it's one of the most controversial or one of the most sensitive topics 
there are now there is so you, you, i mean since since bill Ma uh, bill mayer and sam harris were criticized sam harris had thousands of tweets the next day and 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 articles calling him a racist bigot so he had to spend he's still spending a lot of time in his talks and his podcasts saying that he's not a racist bigot so a lot of people do not want to fall in that trap and end up having to explain themselves or go or become a victim of characters character assassination they'd rather use that jump on that ship and go all right i am the defender of the oppressed and get thousands and millions of likes and make money on youtube or whatever their 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 goal is now it's easy to, to come out and, and start becoming or start talking about islam as the religion of peace and and you know as a westerner you you get a lot of attention from the Islamic world because they are craving that. They want somebody to say that because it's they know it's not true deep inside. They know, but but they want somebody to say that so that the West stops focusing on their religion as the source of terrorism. Well, let's talk about the the, the source of, uh, of terrorism because a lot of people now, um, even in the people who are critical of Islam and are atheists or things like that, they now seem to have compromised their criticism into pushing the idea of quote-unquote reform. And reform, a lot of people like to define it different ways, but basically it's to keep the text, but to say meanings of words are different or phrases are different or to, to modify it to uh, Islam to make it adaptable to the West and liberal values and, and Islam light, if you will. Um, and they want to repackage it and throw it back at the, the Muslim world and say, adopt this. And people think this is a solution to terrorism globally. Um, I'm more than skeptical on this, but I, I I'm, I'm asking a lot of people who are, uh, have more experience, uh, living in uh, under islam around uh uh in a muslim majority country what is your view on on this idea of reform yeah that is a great idea i do not believe in reform simply because islam does not like reform islam says it i don't believe any other religion says that that islam is uh, that for that reform is forbidden muhammad himself said for reform or changing the religion is bid'ah and bid'ah is dalala, which is, uh, you know, you, you have lost your way and you, you will go to hell. So that is, is, Muhammad was very smart in putting what I call, this is my expression, I call it factory reset button that is built within Islam. That, and that factory reset button, just like the iPhone reset button, resets itself back to the 7th century anytime. Even if you've tried added all these reform apps, one time, one day, all of a sudden, somebody will come up and say, oh, you know, let's get back to square one. And that is the factory reset button that is still there and it will never go away because of those hadiths that he left, because of all these things that he discussed, because of year, because of talking about it over and over and over again and islam has to yearn towards for uh, or yearn for becoming the most perfect religion that will dominate the world that is the only religion that has that as a goal 
and that is that is the issue with Islam. Even if you uh, even if you reform it, uh, and uh, and uh, if the West tries to push a reform uh, reform uh, reform the uh, version of Islam and spread it and, and talk about it as a nice thing. Uh, the true Muslims who follow Islam 100% will not agree with them, and they think that's a uh, that's a that's 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 the wrong Islam, and that's rejected, and that's even worse than not being a Muslim. And they will attack those Muslims who pray, for example, like the, the mosque, uh, the mosque where uh, a woman is an imam. I mean, they got that death threats. They have to stop right away. You know what I mean? So th th there's no way because. The, the actual doctrine and the religion itself, the texts are saying that is not true Islam, and you know, a, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, people now are are desperately trying to kind of change or ma manipulate the text to kind of make it a little bit more moderate, uh, or they can't obviously manipulate the Quran, but they'll lie about the content or they'll lie about the Meaning, because uh, Quran you can't modify it. Obviously, it's not like the Bible, unlike the Bible. Uh, but now the the issue with with that is, again, people will 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 still go back and say that that is not the true that is not the true religion. That is not that is not Quran. That is not that is not what 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 Muhammad has said. Look at that. Be honest. Here is what Muhammad said. The most honest Muslims are ISIS. Okay. The most honest Muslims are Wahhabi uh, leaders, uh, or, or when it comes to to the doctrine itself, they're not honest as human beings, but they're honest about the content of uh, of Quran and Hadith. Just to point out, you're not the first person to say this on my podcast. It's actually extremely <laughs> typical that people say that. Yeah, and one more thing: it's uh, uh, Islam has that's not the first time Islam has gone through reform. Since the very beginning of Islam, anybody who tried to reform it, they were killed or they had issues. Or the only best example, the good example of reform of Islam is Al-Andalus. And they still had issues, people killing each other. So, yes, Islam, the best way to solve the issue is to look at Islam as a personal thing. People have to start looking at it as a personal thing and stop uh, making it uh, like a like a way that you ha that you judge other people with. Like Islam is a very judgmental religion. It encourages people to change others and not just yourself. You have to change others to make sure that they follow your your religion. You have to uh, Muslims who are not following the religion the way you follow it are considered infidels and they're they're punishable and they should be and they should you know suffer the consequences. And that is because it says that Muslims, the true Muslims that are not following, or Muslims that are not tr following true Islam, are actually creating problems in society and they should be punished. And that is why there's a lot of crime against Muslims themselves. And I think this whole idea about true Muslim and not, and not, and not true Muslim or, or hypocrit hypocritical Muslims came from Muhammad himself because he wanted to have one, one, idea one one doctrine followed by everyone and applied the same exact way it's a sect so 
that is why it's unreformable. And uh, you can talk about reform all day long, but it's really, really difficult, especially today, really difficult to be applied. So the majority of, of Muslims are not Arab. In the top maybe five most populated Muslim countries are mostly non-Arab. However, the countries where most of the problems are coming from are Arab nations. And I, I think, and we've spoken about this before, but it has a lot to do with the fact that the Arab nations are principally the ones who can speak Arabic. And there, we've spoken that there is some truth to the fact that uh, Islam is not just an Arab religion, it's an Arabic religion. It places a concentration on the language that other religions don't. It's not a principal rule in Christianity to pray in Arama Aramaic or to read the, the Bible in, in Latin or ancient Greek. But in Islam, the, the importance of the language is not something that's similar to Christianity, really. And that possibly has a lot to do with the fact that most of the problems are uh, of of extremism are concentrated in Arab majority countries. Um, uh, do you agree with 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 this a lot? Or yes, one hundred percent. That there is uh, there is extremism in in Afghanistan and some places, but not to the extent of the extremism we have in the Islamic world. Uh, uh, I'll give you an example. Most ISIS members are Arabic speakers. I would say ninety nine percent of uh, ISIS members are Arabic speakers. There are no Pakistanis in ISIS. There are no Afghanis in Indonesians ISIS. Indonesians are probably, I mean, I know there are some, but this, it's rarer. Some Russians, uh, you know, some Chechenians, but the Chechenians are Sunnis. And the Sunnis have, a, they have a huge uh, focus on learning Arabic. Sunnis, because they know, Sunnis is following the Sunnah of Muhammad and Muhammad preached learning Arabic. And that's why Arabic has evolved since Islam. It has evolved to, to uh, I mean, tremendously as a, as a language. It's a very deep language. And you cannot really understand the hadiths and the religious nuances uh, without learning Arabic. And to Christopher Hitchens' points, to, that, that Islam is only intelligible in Arabic. And I, I agree with him 100%. Can I tell you my theory on this? And you can totally tell me if I, I'm completely wrong. But from what I'm, I'm gathering from what I'm studying and speaking to people and reading is that one of the reasons the importance of the language was set in the religion by Muhammad was to actually prohibit innovation was to prohibit people from changing the religion and one of the ways he he realized people change the religion is that the book itself comes under the power of other people outside the followers so one person says i'm the authority like a pope figure and says i can bring new revelations or how the the church uh, itself uh had authority over the bible most people didn't have bibles uh in in under medieval uh christianity and the sermons were done in Latin, but him making universalizing the language of Arabic. So now everybody has to read Arabic and to guarantee that they could do that. They said, OK, you can learn Arabic by reading the Quran or memorizing the, the words of it. And since you the the followers have the Quran memorized themselves, that way someone else, another authority can't tell them what it says. So this was a good way 
to put the power of the religion in the people, but it also kept the religion from changing, which, which created both the solution and a problem that the religion faces today. So, and that element of language wasn't found throughout the history of Christianity in the same way. Right. And I believe and, and in, in Quran, it says, uh, we have brought the Quran to you and we will protect it. Uh, like we will protect the Quran for you. So it, it's unlike other religions. It says that the, the Quran was protected by God. Like he didn't protect the Bible, for example, but he is protecting the Quran unlike he did with other books. Uh, if you think about it deeply, you'll find, well, why didn't he protect other, other books? Anyway, so that's a way for, for, for Muhammad to protect those ideas and not, for them not to change. And, and, of course, to promote the Islamic, uh, sorry, the Arabic culture and the Arabic uh, ideas uh, that are within religion. And it's not, it's not easy to understand Quran when you, when you don't speak Arabic, to be honest. Um, as I was telling you earlier, there's the example of... Um, uh, Whoever killed one person is like uh, they killed the entire humanity. And a lot of Westerners actually use that uh, kind of quote-unquote argument to say that Islam is a religion of peace and that... Even President, allowed... President Obama used that uh, uh, phrase, which is 5, 532, I think, in the Quran. Yes. To, to And he used it when he gave his famous speech in Cairo. He used that yeah, uh, phrase. 32, yeah, 32... 32 and 33 from... but the, 33 the funny is pretty part, nasty, though. Yeah, <laughs> it that's gets, it. It gets, it's really ugly and violent in, in just the next uh, verse of the Quran right after it. It's so funny that the, the, the 32, 32 says, uh, you know, whoever killed one... Uh, and, it, and it talks about the, the, the people of Israel. It talks about a story, a completely different story. But, but yeah, the idea is, uh, you know, you cannot talk... You cannot kill somebody without... Uh, you know, a, a, re a reason. And it says, it's funny that they translate whomever killed somebody, uh, you know, is like killing uh, the entire humanity. But they, they leave a very important um, uh, uh, word that is mentioned in Arabic, which is fasad. Man qatala nafsin bighayri nafsin fasadin fil ard. The condition is fasad fil ard, corruption on earth. If you killed somebody, without them having killed someone or committed corruption on earth, which is so vague. You can say to somebody, you've been drinking, you've been having sex with women, that's corruption on earth and will get you executed. You have left Islam, that's corruption of er on earth. But people want to leave that out because it, 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 it serves their agenda. They, want, they don't want to be honest with this verse. Well, I'd actually... And 533 at least as i read it in english and you can tell me if the translation is close is that uh if you also uh, spread corruption corruption against the prophet or god then you must have your arms and limbs opposite to themselves amputated and burned or maybe expelled in certain cases from the exactly. lands yeah that is that's correct uh, that is that you couldn't have a politically correct translation for that one because but people would not mention it as a 
as a proof for Islam being a religion of peace. They will say, oh, wait a second, that's out of context. But the one before wasn't out of context for some reason. I'd love to know how, how amputating limbs, it can be reinterpreted into a better way. But, you know, if... Um... Uh, let, let me let me ask you th uh, this. Uh, what do you think about the the term that's uh, mainly controversial now? Uh, is Islamism to to separate Islam from its political uh, uh, concepts? Do you do you agree with that uh, with that word and how people use it? That there is Islam and Islamism, and that the problem is Islam. I'm sorry, the problem is Islamism and not Islam. Okay, well, can I, can I ask you one question? What is, the, is there a book of Islamism? Well, yeah, it's called the Quran. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You have your answer. So, so Islamism is the word, is radical Islam is applying the Quran 100% and hadith. No, Muhammad was an Islamist. Okay? So, if you, if you used Islamism, Muhammad was the biggest Islamist in the history. So, uh, and Muhammad is the actual spiritual guide of all Muslims. It is the person we will look up to. He decapitated 600 Jews in one, one uh, 600 people in one tribe for no reason. Because they, uh, they defied or didn't want to pay the tax or whatever. So, uh, he did many, many uh, conquests. And people will not want to look into his personality and the the trouble troublesome thing he's done, and they they wouldn't look into history. They wouldn't read about him. They just want to keep him as a spiritual, amazing, perfect person uh, to look up to without knowing exactly what he's been doing uh, throughout his life. So, and that is the issue, because once you realize who Muhammad was, you will start moving away from Islam. Is it possible for, for people to completely disconnect political Islam from just a spiritual Islam? It is. It is possible. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, it is possible. And that, uh, that's probably the only glimpse of, hell, of hope we have. Uh, but but it's still, even though, even, even if you're not a Muslim, even if you're not, uh, even if you disconnect that and, and, and just follow Islam as a religion for yourself, there are things that still will offend you as a Muslim. There are things when you see somebody criticizing Islam as a religion, you will still get offended, and that you cannot. We cannot move forward that way. Um, you know, Islamism as an idea or as a term came from, I believe, the first time it, I heard it being used was with the political jihad or political Islam in Algeria. They called themselves the Islamist movement. Or le mouvement islamiste or islamique. Uh, so that that you know the, the, you know a lot of Westerners or moderate Muslims that are against terrorism want to blame terrorism on a kind of a modified or, um, the, or like they call it the wrong version of Islam, a modified Islam, corrupted Islam that is used for polit political gains. A lot of it is used for political gains, but a lot of it is Islam itself. They're applying Islam 100%. You cannot, you cannot, uh, you know, argue that this isn't Islam. If you look at the books, it is. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you can you can split the two. And some people are, you know, a lot of Muslims I know. That's why not not a lot of 
that's not that's why not most Muslims are terrorists. That's why most Muslims are peaceful because they were able to split up those two things, those two aspects, uh, and uh, not connected, uh, not connected the, their their beliefs to uh, like politically uh, or not believe in political Islam or the need to control everyone and push everyone to follow their religion. I believe. Uh, though it's still a growing now, a growing idea that and now more and more people, uh, as they get radicalized, quote-unquote, quote meaning getting Islamized and becoming more Muslims, <laughs> they start focusing on others and controlling others uh, and wanting to control others. And that is the issue with political Islam, is that you want to dominate your neighbor first and your family, but also you want to dominate the entire world with your ideas, you, you go, I am right. And everybody else has to follow the same exact word of, uh, uh, preached by Muhammad. So I, I, think, I think it's important to have more and more people who don't, who don't follow political Islam or who uh, just think of Islam as a personal thing to them and people who would tolerate Islam being criticized. I think if we can have that, just like we have in Christianity and most Christians, uh, or uh, I would say um, most of other religions that will allow criticism. I think we can move forward that way. And we, we need to stop. Uh, and Muslims need to uh, be be able to uh, to avoid conflict and and getting upset over criticism of their religion. Uh, if they keep getting upset and killing people for criticizing or for their opinion, uh, we can never move forward. Most people in, in the West are very ignorant of the religion. It's not something that's taught in school. Um, mm -hmm. It's completely foreign, and it only really was forced into the public eye after 9-11. But nobody was prepared for it. Nobody had a, a background in education for it, except for maybe a few, very few experts. But, so, but suddenly everybody is talking about this part of the world that they don't know about the history, they don't know about the culture, they don't know about the religion, but they have to have an opinion on it. They just have to. There's no way around it. Um, yes. But it is an uninformed opinion. It's not really their fault because, you know, their education didn't really uh, prepare them for it. Um, I, I think that's one solution is to make more education of, of the region and of the religion compulsory. Yeah, but th but then but then what what kind of religion are they going to teach the West? Are they going to talk? Yeah, that's kind yeah, of that yeah. what worries me. Who's going to teach those courses? Are they going to bring in Reza Aslan to teach those courses and people like him? Then it's it's not going to help actually. And they'll that's probably the people they'll choose, unfortunately. Yeah, that's exactly what they'll choose, and and that that's exactly what's popular. Nobody in the West wants to confront the issue head on. I I can only name a few people. Douglas Murray is one of them. People who would actually confront it, and the majority of people that confront it are from the from the right wing, and the right wing in front of the rest of the world are just racist bigots. So they will use that, and they say they are just racist bigots who hate Muslims. It's not they're not just stating facts; they're just racist bigots. So that is where when where the uh, voice of ex-Muslims comes in, and and they'll just go. Yeah, we know about this. We've practiced it for years. We know Islam. We speak Arabic. Let's talk about it. And that that actually makes people mad. 
that includes uh, that includes Westerners and Muslims alike. They do not want to hear us talk. They don't. And, uh, you know, uh, they don't want to hear Ayan Arsi Ali talk. They, they, they think she, she's using it to make money. Uh, they'll find the label for anybody so that they'll stop them from talking. They'll go, Ayan Arsi Ali has sold her dignity and has sold her background or religion just to make money. And that's the label they will use for a lot of ex-Muslims. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that that's, that's the only people who can actually talk about it and articulate it and walk them through it are, are, are ex-Muslims. And a lot of ex-Muslims actually do not want to talk. There are thousands of them, thousands, but don't want to talk because they don't want to be, they don't want to face those consequences, security consequences, and they don't want to uh, be shunned by their families and they don't want to be. Uh, put in the spot or called Islamophobic or whatever the case might be. Is there anything last you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, uh, peace and love. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, I hope, uh, you know, we're not, we're not the enemies of Muslims. We're not the enemies of I mean, Arabs or, uh, or anybody who's still practicing Islam. Uh, that whether they are Westerners, or they're not, no matter where they are from, uh, I, I'm I'm kind of reaching out to Muslims to open their mind and and sit down and discuss their religion, whether amongst each other or with us, ex-Muslims. Uh, you cannot just put us put a label and say these guys just left religion and they are, uh, you know stabbing their quote-unquote brothers in the back. We're not doing that. We have gone through the same issues you're going through, and we're doing it because we know Islam is a bad idea. It's an old idea. It's a bad idea. We can evolve. We can be moral without it. Um, you, can, you can try to, uh, to make it uh, work and make it more, uh, more kind of adapted with the current world we live in but i believe that we have now more moral views uh than anything you could find in 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 islam itself or in any religion we have morality that we have discussed and debated and we have reached pretty fair laws uh in the world we don't uh we don't believe that uh, cutting the the person's hand off is is morally acceptable or is acceptable today. Uh, Islam does not hold the monopoly of morality, so we should evolve and move forward. You can keep Islam as a spirituality. You can believe in your God the way you want to. Just don't force it on others and don't judge others. Start by judging yourself. Try to be a better person, and do not stop people from criticizing your religion because we will always criticize your religion that will not stop